Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the HSAC podcast. We are the Harvard Sports Analysis Collective, a group of students at Harvard University dedicated to the quantitative analysis of sports strategy and management. By exploring all of your favorite players, teams, and sports, we bring new insights to the game and help you become a more knowledgeable fan. In this episode, we'll be recapping the Australian Open tournament, exploring the state of tennis analytics, and evaluating the cases for the goats of tennis. My name is Danny Blumenthal, and today I'm happy to be joined by David Arco and Jonathan Ontiveros. Uh, yeah, so I'm David. I am a freshman, probably going to study economics and possibly a minor in statistics from Los Angeles, California, and I'm on the Harvard men's tennis team and also on the board of HSAC. Hello, I'm Jonathan. I'm a junior at Harvard College studying statistics. I played tennis in high school and like applying statistics to sports. Thank you both for being here. Before we get started, let's recap the Australian Open a bit, starting with the women's side. After being postponed three weeks due to COVID-19, the main draw started on February 8th. While there were few upsets in the first round, the second round saw three of the top 10 players, including defending champion Sophia Kennan, get knocked out. The following rounds also saw some carnage among the top seeds, as American Jessica Pagula knocked off a pair of former major champions on her way to the quarterfinals. However, the top story this year was likely Serena Williams and her quest to tie the record for most majors. Williams had come close to capturing the elusive 24th slam on several occasions, but had fallen in the finals each time. Nevertheless, many thought that this could finally be her year. She's won seven Australian Open titles and had performed best on hard courts throughout her career. But while Serena breezed through the first few rounds of the tournament, losing only one set in her first five matches, she ran into a buzzsaw in the semifinals. Number three ranked Naomi Osaka thumped Williams in straight sets, 6-3, 6-4, and went on to beat 22nd ranked Jennifer Brady in the final. So how would you guys rate Serena Williams' performance this tournament? Is she the GOAT of women's tennis, even if she never captures Grand Slam number 24? So I think Serena Williams is undoubtedly um, one of the best tennis players in history. Given her Grand Slam record, even though she falls one Grand Slam short currently of Margaret Court, I think that the discrepancy in years is large enough to merit Serena being considered like greatest of all times tennis players in women's tennis. In this past Australian Open, I do think that something like that she's been known for in the past, such as her strong serves, has declined. She's only made 56.9% of first serves this year, um, which is like the second lowest of her career. Whereas we saw a new star in well, serving this Australian Open, Naomi Osaka, come out with the highest number of aces in this Grand Slam. Yeah, I think Jonathan made a great point, you know, comparing, everyone's constantly comparing Serena to Margaret Court, who has like the record right now, I think 24. But I think a, a key difference is that Margaret Court, she played part of her career before the open era. So there was professionals and amateurs. And so a lot of people played on the professional tour because they had to make money, whereas the Grand Slams were on the amateur tour. So she wasn't necessarily, Margaret Court didn't have all the tough competition that Serena is facing nowadays. If you're trying to compare it to another sport, think about you know the NFL before the merger or something like that. So then in that way, I think Serena is the GOAT. It's sort of similar on the men's side. You have Rod Laver, who's also Australian like Margaret Court. Some of his Grand Slam wins were before the open air, and Raleigh actually didn't play during 
the eight-year period in which he was a professional. So he wasn't able to compete in any of those Grand Slams during those periods. So that's kind of a, an interesting parallel in terms of men's tennis history. And I think people are comparing Serena so much to Margaret Court just because of this 24 number, but there's so many other female players who are probably more worthy of that GOAT title than Margaret Court. You know, Steffi Graf has 22 Grand Slams. Navratilova has 18. Chris Everett has 18. And they all played in a really competitive era of tennis. So I think these are kind of the players that we should be comparing to Serena a little bit more so than Margaret Court. And I think in terms of off-the-court GOAT worthiness for Serena, she's kind of transformed the game more than anyone else. She has this kind of immense power in her game on her serve, on her ground strokes that kind of transformed the women's game. And we're seeing people like Osaka kind of emulate her with her power. And also just, I mean, being a black athlete in a dominantly white sport like tennis is just very important. And she's kind of the face of tennis. And, you know, in sports, a common thing is that the men's is much more popular in terms of viewership than the women's, whether it's the NBA, WNBA, things like that. But Serena might be the one exception to this, where she is always the big draw at all these tournaments, all these events. So that's kind of what I think is really unique about Serena. And I think regardless of whether she wins one more, she should be the GOAT of women's tennis. Yeah, that's a great point, David. Serena's been the GOAT both on the court and off it. So as you both mentioned, there's a potential threat to the throne uh, with Naomi Osaka. Osaka only lost one set during her entire Australian Open run. What would you say about her playing style that makes her so good, especially on the hard courts of the Australian Open? Yeah, Osaka is best known for her offensive play style and strong serves. Um, like I mentioned before, her serves are some of the fastest. And in the Australian Open, she led in the number of aces at 50 aces, which was 15 points ahead of the second rank, which was Serena Williams at 35. I think her like powerful play style really interacts well with the Australian Open hard courts, and I think we can expect her to continue to perform well in the future Australian Opens. Yeah, Jonathan hit it hit around the head. It's it's her play style, you know, aggressive baseline or big serve, and similar to Serena, which is a lot better for fast courts. You know, she's really hot. She's won her last 21 matches. But interestingly, on the flip side, because her game is so aggressive, she's not nearly as good on clay as she's never gone past the third round at the French Open or Wimbledon, which is kind of surprising. And in her career, she has a 70% winning percentage on hard, 55% on clay, and 55% on grass. So you're kind of seeing this somewhat of a, not she's one-dimensional, but this power in her game is, is best suited for, you know, hard court which is probably a good thing because the majority of tournaments are on hard court, but we'll see, you know, the French open is the next tournament. We'll see if Naomi can kind of break out of that and have a good run there. Cause this is, I think the hottest she's ever been in her career. So that'll be interesting to see. Transitioning to the men's side. Now the talk of the tournament was Aslan Karatsev's Cinderella story. He snuck into the tournament as a qualifier and went on to upset three seated players, including eighth ranked Diego Schwartzman. Finally, though, the clock struck midnight and Karatsev was knocked out in the semifinals by Novak Djokovic. Djokovic defended his throne in the final, sweeping fourth-ranked Daniil Medvedev en route to his record ninth Australian Open title. After the tournament, Djokovic said that this was, quote, one of the hardest tournaments, unquote, he's had. He survived a scare from 27th-ranked Taylor Fritz in the third round and overcame a muscle tear in that same match. However, According to Ultimate Tennis Statistics, this was actually the easiest of Djokovic's 18 Grand Slam victories, as the tournament had the lowest average ELO rating of any of the tournaments he's won. 
Historically, the Australian Open typically has had fewer upsets than other major tournaments. However, it seemed as though there were more upsets this year than in the past, with 61st-ranked Jessica Pagula making the quarters on the women's side, and as mentioned above, Aslan Karatsev reaching the semifinals as a qualifier on the men's side. Is this just a coincidence, or is the added tumult associated with COVID-19 introducing more chaos? Yeah, so I think... Just begin like COVID nineteen is unprecedented time for uh, sports, and not only did it affect the Australian Open, but like the past year of players' lives. I know from news that Djokovic hasn't been having a good time at all, but I mean he still managed to win. Whereas the quarantines or the um, players had to undergo, or it's the general stress of traveling and not being able to be with family and definitely had a big effect on player performance. Players like Nomi Osaka or Djokovic did like manage to, I guess, find their peace and continue to perform well, but I would attribute a lot of the upset to COVID-19. Yeah, this was actually a really interesting question that I was interested in before the tournament to see if there would be an effect of COVID on the tournament and how it would impact. And just for like some context, so basically at first, there was a hard quarantine and then a soft quarantine. So the hard quarantine was, I think, 10, 14 days in your hotel room. And that would happen to players that were on like a similar flight to someone that tested positive. Then most players were in the soft quarantine where it was, you know, like a three or four days and then they could go out and play. So I was interested to see what the effect would be. And I think there was an ESPN article that was about the quarantine and it had all the players that were in hard quarantine. And I think for the hard quarantine, 54 out of the 55 players lost in the opening three rounds. But I take issue with this article because the players, it has their seeds next to their, you know, next to which player it was. And the majority of them were qualifiers, lucky losers, or non-seeded players. So these players are expected to lose in the first couple of rounds anyway. I'm not sure if they were the ones who are more likely to be quarantined because of the qualifying setup. But anyway, I don't think this article really shows that COVID had much of an effect. And in terms of what I tried to kind of like look at on my own, I'll pull up this spreadsheet that I did. I was trying to look at key things that COVID would affect. So like double faults or something that if you're not as rusty. Of the last five years, this was the third lowest double fault percentage. So no effect there. Another thing I looked at was the number of top 20 seeds knocked out in the opening round. And this year, only three top 20 seeds were knocked out in the opening round. There were five retirements. So that's like when people withdraw due to injury or something like that. That's about on average with the last five years or so, maybe on the little slightly higher side. But basically, I don't think there was much of an impact due to COVID in terms of upsets and player performance and things like that. But it definitely, yeah, that's definitely interesting because going into it, I was thinking, you know, as a tennis player myself, I was thinking if you can't play for 14 days, or 10 days and you're trapped in your hotel room and then you have maybe a week and a half or two weeks to gear up for this huge tournament, it's going to be a huge disadvantage. So I was actually kind of shocked to see personally how it didn't have as much of an effect, I think, on the actual tournament. But yeah, I think this might have you know interesting ramifications for the future, like players needing to know how much they need to train before a tournament, how much time they can take off. Because common knowledge is you, know, you can never take time off because then you're going to fall behind. But nobody ever really did take time off. So now they were kind of forced to, and it kind of opens up this new idea to kind of see whether how much time they really need to be, you know, training hardcore for these tournaments. So that was something interesting. 
definitely. One thing that stood out, 538 did an article at the end of 2020 in which they looked across sports and found that generally the favorites actually won more often in 2020. The Los Angeles Dodgers, who were one of, if not the best team in Major League Baseball, won the World Series. Alabama, the best team in college football, went on to win the national championship. LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers were the NBA champions. So it's possible that COVID might have actually had the reverse effect than maybe we were thinking, and such that it was made it more likely for favorites to win, uh, as Djokovic and Osaka came away with the Australian Open titles. Do you guys think that COVID could potentially have larger effects on lower-ranked players who potentially don't have the means to get prepared without the proper background, like maybe Djokovic and Osaka have better training, better facilities, they can prepare and withstand any COVID quarantines? Um, I think it can go both ways, just like in any other sport, there's like home team advantage, which kind of basically goes away with COVID. In tennis, not so much since they're grand slams and there's no like home advantage, but I do think uh, the crowd can have like a positive or negative effect on a player, depending on like how you take it and on the individual player. But what you mentioned before, I, I do think the availability of facilities or trainers definitely has a large effect. So yeah, people who have more resources can probably adapt better to the situation than those who don't. This is interesting. So I just thought of this in my head, but if one thinks that if you're not practicing, then it's more saying of your true talent, like talent over how much you're working hard. So if all the players have this time off and everyone's reverted back to their original talent state, that means that the lower ranked players who just aren't as talented as Djokovic don't have that hard work, that kind of gearing up for the tournament that they spend months training and they're kind of at their baseline or their lower level. And Djokovic just has a higher baseline than them. So that might be a reason why, you know, time off inhibits them from being able to train and be prepared to go up against Djokovic, whereas Djokovic doesn't need that so as much. You know, he's got a longer career. He's been the best or one of the best for the last 10 years. He doesn't need that. He knows how to win. These other guys need these warm-up tournaments play a big factor. And there was really a lack of warm-up tournaments going to the Australian Open. So they weren't really kind of able to catch fire or get into gear. And that's the thing with tennis a lot too, you know, as a player, even within an individual match, it takes time to get warm and get into the game. I think tennis a lot more so than other sports. And on a tournament level, as you get deeper into the tournament, you start performing better and you kind of settle into your, into your game. So in that effect, since there was a lack of warm-up tournaments and things like that, that kind of prevented like lower ranked players from really like getting hot, I guess you could say. So that's why Djokovic and Osaka, who have those really high baselines, I think were able to win. That's a great point, David. So nevertheless, this tournament still did see excellent performances from ri rising stars, such as fifth-ranked Stefanos Tsitsipas, who ousted Rafael Nadal in the quarterfinals, and number four, Daniil Medvedev, who made it all the way to the final. Even though Rafael Nadal maybe had a higher baseline, these players still were able to knock them out and make it all the way to the final few matches. So who is one underrated player from this next generation who might excel soon? And what about their playing style makes them so special? Yeah, so players like Medvedev, Tsitsipas, and Tiam are, are all great and up-and-coming tennis players that I'm excited to see in the future. 
but I guess at the moment they're not at the level to consistently challenge and beat the big three in order to adapt in order to hopefully like beat them before just like waiting them out. It would be a lot of like mental and experiential changes that I have to make. And looking at that, seeing Medvedev play this Australian Open, and especially after like his press conference, he seems to have taken his loss well. And I think he would be my first choice as someone who has the good mental capability to learn from this experience and hopefully have some future exciting challenges against Djokovic again. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Jonathan on this one. I think he hit on, you know, the five big challengers, Danil Medvedev, Stefanos Tsitsipas, Dominic Thiem, Alexander Zverev, and Andre Rublev, maybe you could say as a potential fifth. But in terms of age, you know, Tsitsipas is 22, Zverev and Rublev are 23, Medvedev is 25, and Team is 27. So Team, I wouldn't call a challenger. Team right now, I think, is the, probably without Federer, Federer's injured, Team is the third best player right now, and he's been pretty consistent. So I wouldn't say he's a challenger, but he'll definitely be in the competition to win some slams. So I think he's the most immediate step up. But I also think that Medvedev has been really hot at the moment. And the key is, Jonathan said it when he was talking, was consistency. So in terms of top 10, so TC Pass is against players who are within the top 10. He has a winning percentage of 43 in his career and Zverev has a winning percentage of 40. So they really struggle with that, you know, consistency, which is what you need to kind of make it deep in the grand slams and challenge Djokovic. Whereas Medvedev in his career is 51%. And lately he's, he's really hot. Like in the last year, he's 85%. So to me, that's what matters the most. I think Medvedev is going to be the strongest competitor this season and next to challenge the big three team. Also team is also very competitive. So you have this big group of five, but then there's also like always a young cohort coming up, you know, people even near twenties. So the Canadian side, there's Denis Shapovalov and Felix Agur Aliasim been in the top 20 for the last three years since they were 18, 19. So we'll see if they can kind of break through to the next level. And then you have guys like Yannick Sinner. He's 34 in the world right now, and he's 19 years old. So these guys could, they have more room to develop than maybe Team or Zverev, whereas they've kind of already at their peak. So we could see these really young guys kind of break through, which will be interesting to see. As Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal phase out, these guys are going to phase in. So it'll be interesting to watch. Excellent. So we've talked about the talent of Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams and their surfing and their ground strokes. That's what makes those players special. We've highlighted Medvedev's mental skills and his consistency. But more broadly, what statistics are most important and predictive when evaluating a player's performance? And what, what's the state of analytics in the game of tennis? I haven't done much formal statistics in tennis, but from like a tennis, well, a high school tennis player's perspective, I think like percent of service games won and the ability, well, percent um, like breakage on an opponent's serve is a very big indicator of how much control a player has in the game. And I think those two would be two of the most like easy to read indicative statistics for uh, a tennis player. But the exciting thing about tennis analytics is that it's still um, developing and uh, still needs to like catch up to the analytics scenes on other sports and hopefully something as complex or like comprehensive as as like the Raptor scoring system for basketball can emerge for tennis. Yeah. I really like that Raptor metric. I mean, and other basketball metrics, like, you know, plus minors or things like that. 
I've done a little stuff on my own where you can kind of compare tennis players. It's very simple. Just compare them to the average in a specific category, like return points. One, you take the average of return points of everyone on the tour. You take that player, you see how much better they are at returning. And then you can kind of combine it to see where these players strengths lie. Is it on the serve? Is it on the return and different things like that. So I think there's a lot of, you know, statistics that you can combine and mold to kind of get an idea of how good a player really is. I think some of the most important, obviously the traditional ones, you know, service games, one return games, one, that's just a simple one that they already do show. But I think another one that's kind of not as thought of is like maybe like the frequency of generating break points. Cause if you can generate a lot of break points or just opportunities to break serve, that means you're going to have in any given match, an increased likelihood of winning. So that's important. And also in tennis, we were actually talking about this earlier in our HSAC meeting. Tennis is the one sport where you can win a majority of the points in a match and still lose the whole match. Whereas, you know, football is just scoring basketball, hockey, baseball. It's, it's just whoever scores the most wins. But tennis, if you win more points, you can still lose the match based on the system of scoring. And granted, that really never happens. But in tennis, it's really important how you perform on key points, like deuce points, break points, tie breaks. So if you look at metrics like percent of break points converted or percent of tie breaks won, things like that in these like clutch, pivotal, high leverage scenarios in a match and players who excel at that, you'll see that those players are probably the top players. And um, yeah, in terms of the state of analytics in tennis, Jonathan said it, it's super underdeveloped compared to other sports. You know, tennis is an extremely mental sport. Both of us as players can kind of relate to that, but there's not a mental element in terms of strategy as much yet. It's more based on somewhat gut and your personal strengths. So a player will play to their strengths and not really consider their opponent as much as they could. Whereas in football or something, basketball, you're scheming for your opponent. In tennis, if I have a strong forehand, I'm going to just use my forehand. But that really isn't the right way to go about it because you want to kind of tailor your strategy to your opponent. One example I can think of, if you're familiar with tennis, John Isner is a big server. He plays you know, short points. And if you want to do good against John Isner, you want to stay in the rally longer because he's going to make an error more often. So in that match, you want to be a little more consistent against Isner. You don't want to play as aggressive. You want to kind of make him make the errors. But then if you play someone like Djokovic, who's really steady and really consistent, the deeper and deeper you get into the point, the less and less likely you are going to win that point. You need to be aggressive. You need to take you know balls early. So th- those are two different players and you need to kind of tailor your strategy to them. So I think that state of analytics where players are kind of more creating these unique strategies for each player based on analytics and past performance is where the game is kind of headed. And you'll kind of see everyone's performance boost in that way. I'll be interesting to see if players incorporate this earlier and kind of get a leg up on other players. Like for example, if someone comes into Grand Slam match against Djokovic and has this really, really creative strategy that no one's ever seen before that's come from analytics and he beats them that way. I mean, that'll be, that'll be amazing, but we'll see if that happens. Yeah. David's made some great points in particular, the idea of using matchups against specific players and game planning for specific players in particular. I think this is really crucial when we're having discussions about the goat with Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, all playing at the same time. One criteria people often use is head to head. But this isn't necessarily always the best way to go about it because certain players can really do well against others. So in particular, as David's written about, Roger Federer doesn't really match up well against Rafael Nadal. 
because Nadal is just such a good player in terms of his backhand and his high spin rate on that backhand. And so he's able to really defeat Federer well, even though those two might be comparable players overall. Nadal really has a strong matchup advantage against Federer. But one other thing that we highlighted was the idea that it's really important to play well on key points. This notion of being clutch has been talked about in other sports, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. Is being clutch and performing well on key points a sustainable trait? Can certain players elevate their game more on key points? Or is this uh, more of a random process? Just sometimes people get hot, sometimes people get cold. Or is it that people can actually be clutch in those key situations? I think that it's definitely like a mix between like mental and physical capabilities. Starting with physical, the conditioning of a player or like their overall fitness really attributes through like, I guess, like their burn rate or their ability to continue to play at their peak or like optimal performance for an extended, for whether it be like an extended match between players or like just an extended point. Like if it's a very long rally, some like older players probably just like let it go. And then on the mental end, it does take a lot of mental fortitude to be able to handle such high pressure situations and continue to be consistent in those clutch moments. I actually really, really like this question, Danny. I think it applies to a lot of sports too. And personally, I think about clutch in a different way than most people. So most people probably think of clutch as how you perform in a clutch situation, how each player performs. I think there's a big problem with this. I'll talk about it in terms of basketball, I guess, and then I'll relate it back to tennis because I think it's easier that way. This is how I like to think about clutch. It's more about each individual player's performance relative to themselves in a clutch situation, not compared to everybody else. Because if you just compare it to everyone else, the best players are going to be the most clutch. That's not really giving you any new information. So for example, in basketball, say JJ Redick, great three-point shooter, shoots 40% from three. LeBron James, uh, these are made up numbers, but LeBron James shoots 30%. Then in clutch time, in five minutes when it's close, say JJ Redick shoots 37% from three, LeBron shoots 33. If you're just going off who's better in clutch time, JJ Redick has a higher three-point percentage. He's more clutch than LeBron. But I don't think this is true because LeBron is performing better relative to his average. So I think we should be rethinking clutch to compare individual players to themselves rather than to the average. Did some research on my own. And so basically for tennis, clutch would be comparing clutch scenarios, you know, tie breaks, break points, deciding sets, things like that, create a kind of a clutch plus minus metric, weighting these in different ways and comparing a player's performance on all non-clutch points, regular points versus their performance on clutch points. So if they normally win, say 60% of points on their serve, and then they win 70% of points on their serve on those clutch points on break points, they have a clutch, you know, plus minus of 10. So they're 10 points above clutch relative to themselves. Yeah. No. So I did look, you know, into seeing which players like making this kind of clutch plus minus stat. And it, obviously you, you'll get names that you don't normally have. Cause if we just looked at comparing their performance in clutch situations to regular then the most clutch players would just be the best players. It'd be Nadal, it'd be Federer, it'd be Djokovic because they win points the most often. So they're going to win break points the most often. So it's better to look at, you know, comparing their, their individual performance to their performance on 
those non-clutch situations to get a good sense of if a player really is clutch or is not clutch. And that should be the same for, you know, all sports, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When looking across sports, one thing to keep in mind is that when we're deciding whether clutch performance is replicable skill or whether it's just due to chance, we have to keep in mind looking across years. If you only look at one year, whether certain players are clutch or not, some players are bound to increase their performance during clutch time just because it's such a big sample of players. And with any distribution of players, we'll probably end up with some who exceed their performance level by a statistically significant amount, but that's not necessarily the way we want to be looking at it. We need a larger sample size. We need to see whether it's a replicable scale across years. So one final thing before we finish up is that Novak Djokovic has been the best player at the Australian Open this year on the men's side, cruised to the title. As much as he might say that this was his hardest tournament, it seemed pretty easy at times. So he's now won 18 Grand Slam titles, including nine at the Australian Open. With this victory, he's also due to pass Federer for the most weeks ranked number one overall. Sports fans always argue about the GOAT, and while it's tough to definitively choose one player, there are three worthy contenders right now in Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. So Jonathan, we'll start with you. Who is your choice for the men's tennis GOAT? Could be one of these three, could be someone else from history, but who's your choice for the GOAT of men's tennis? Personally, I'm a Djokovic fan just because of like his story. I find it really impressive how him coming into professional tennis and breaking in to establish like the big three and kind of just like contending against Federer and then Dahl for like one or two years. It was just them leading the whole tennis scene. And I really um, admire how he kind of like changed his game during 2011 and how he evolved as a player. Yeah, and I still think he has a couple of years to keep going strong to at least surpass Federer and maybe give Nadal a run for his money. Yeah, Jonathan's right. That's it. No, no, I'm kidding. The debate is actually really interesting. I think there's a good case for all three of them, and that's what makes it you know so interesting. Everyone has a credit to that GOAT title. But for me, I agree. Djokovic is my GOAT. I get really interested in this discussion. It's one of the probably the most, I think it's maybe one of the most interesting sports discussions in general. The main thing is it's so rare to have three of these best players all playing at the same time because the nature of tennis is that you're competing against each other. So when Federer wins a slam, it kind of takes away from Djokovic, but yet these three are all dominating at the same time. Whereas in basketball, you know, you can be on different teams and it's not necessarily like competing directly as tennis where it's the nature of the draw. A French Open for Nadal, he sucked up all those French Opens. Djokovic or Federer couldn't win any of those. But if Nadal were not in this era, just think how many more slams they they would win some of those French Opens. So that's kind of what makes it so impressive. But for me, yeah, Djokovic is the GOAT, even though I'd say in common perception, he's probably the third of the three right now, maybe. And I think the problem is that people get too caught up on looking at just the raw number of slams, you know, better as 20, Nadal as 20, Djokovic is 18. We have to wait till he passes him, which is definitely, there's still more to the debate. There's still more time to tell, but grand slams, there's four grand slams a year. Each player plays about 20 or so tournaments. So that's one fifth of the year. Granted, it's the most important. It's a good gauge of when players try, but I think there's just so much more out there. That's important criteria. 
when considering who the GOAT is. And I think in all those different categories, Djokovic is a leader. He has, I'm just pulling this up from my article. <laughs> but yeah, so first of all, Danny mentioned it, head-to-head winning percentage. That's just a great way in tennis. It's a one-on-one sport. You can tell who's better. Djokovic and Nadal have a pretty similar record against all three. They're about 53%. But and Federer is pretty far behind at 43 And when you break it down by surface, Djokovic leads on both hard and grass and Nadal leads a lot on clay, but Nadal is the lowest on both hard and grass of the big three. And I think when you're considering a goat, what's important is all around, you know, versatility across all surfaces. We aren't trying to determine the best clay court player. That's Nadal, no question. But we're trying to determine the best overall player of all time. And hard is the majority surface. Djokovic is better on hard and on grass. And he's still pretty competitive with Nadal. He's the second best clay court player of this generation besides Nadal. So I think that's going from the head-to-head records, versatility across surfaces, his peak, you know, they have ELO for tennis and he had the highest peak ELO that was back in, I think, 2016 or so, you know, when he had that big run, he's about to pass Federer for most weeks at number one. And yeah, I think longevity wise, he has the best chance of the big three to kind of go longer into his career and win more slams. I think Federer, unfortunately, I was, a, I am still a big Federer fan growing up. I don't think he has another grand slam in him given his recent injury. And Nadal maybe has a couple more French opens, maybe one or two on another surface. In my mind, this is the big flack that I get is I discount that 20 number a little bit for it all being on clay. But with Djokovic, he's got the best chance to win more slams. So I think right now, if you stopped, there's a very strong case for him to be the GOAT. I think once, hopefully, and if he will pass the other two, he has probably the strongest case for being the GOAT. But there's definitely a a good answer for all three, and I think no one's right or wrong, and this is a really interesting debate. And yeah, I think it's helped bring tennis you know, a little bit more into the mainstream. People are kind of invested in watching this race, and hopefully it kind of brings more attention to the sport in the long run. Definitely. Great points by all. Um, one thing David brought up was the idea of Djokovic's peak performance. One thing across sports that those two things really seem to be the main drivers of GOAT discussions across sports. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan might have had a better peak performance, but LeBron's been in the league for longer, so maybe he'll end up with better longevity numbers. But one thing that's unique in this discussion is that Djokovic has the potential to lead on both of those categories, at least compared to Federer and Nadal. As David mentioned, Djokovic has the highest peak ELO compared to both Nadal and Federer, but Djokovic also peaked later during his age 29 year, whereas Nadal and Federer peaked around 26. And so Djokovic has the potential for a longer term career as well, especially as Nadal and Federer have to deal with injuries, Nadal playing a tougher style that might lead to more injuries and a steeper decline in the coming years. So because of his longevity and peak performance, that combination, I tend to lean towards Djokovic as being the GOAT as well. With that, thank you, David and Jonathan, for expert perspectives, and thank you all for listening to us today. We encourage you to check out David's article on the men's tennis GOAT at harvardsportsanalysis.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Harvard underscore sports. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you.